Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. It is my joy, my honor, my amazing blessing to be with each and every one of you as we are about to dive into the fifth Aliyah. And I would like to say uh, shalom, y'all, to everybody. I'm glad you're watching me from the uh, listen, watching the Aliyah Day, I should say, from across the fruited plain. We are in, as I said, the fifth Aliyah of the Parasha Vayeki, and um, we are on page 281, 281, Baruch Hashem. So it's a joy to be uh, with you. Um, I just see Ed is watching from Toronto. Welcome, Ed. Glad you're here. Um, hello, Rachel. Good to see you, my dear. Um is there anybody watching? From, I think somebody messaged the Rebbe scene last night and asked if any we had any Lapidniks, I believe, in Ontario, Canada. I think that's what the person was asking. I wasn't 100% for sure, because we have Lapidniks everywhere, by the hundreds, if not thousands, across the globe. <clears throat> but I wasn't sure about Ontario. We have somebody who's been watching, uh, or at least starting to tune in, from Scotland. I'm so excited for Scotland. Want to go to Scotland one day. Want to go to Ireland. Like to go to Germany, South Africa. You know all those places. India. Well, welcome. So anyway, <laughs> one of these days, Bezradashin, um, uh, Hawaii. Praying for that Lapid house in Hawaii. Make it so, Hashem. Uh, page two eighty one. Welcome. By the way, we had a great uh, opening class for this year's. Uh, conversion uh, program for those who are going through formal uh, conversion to Lapid Judaism. It was a great class. It was great to have everybody there. I uh, had the opportunity to share some insights, and I always enjoy doing that because uh, we get to peek behind the curtain, so to speak, like the movie uh, Wizard of Oz, and get to reveal some things that, uh, you know, I mean, I'm biased, but you'll never hear, this is the only place you'll hear it. May one day it'll, that won't be the case. One day we'll have Lapid uh, uh, places everywhere and teachers everywhere. But today this is it. All right, page two eighty one, article Humash, Capitulo Quarenta in Wave forty nine. We're going to be um, reading here in uh, what were we? We are in verse twenty, and so uh, actually let's read. I think we left off in nineteen yesterday. So. Let's read verse 19 to start the fifth Aliyah, shall we? Here we go. Gad will recruit a regiment, and it will retreat on its heel. From Asher, his bread will have riches, and he will provide kingly delicacies. Naphtali is a hind let loose who delivers beautiful sayings. A charming son is Yosef, a charming son to the eye. Each of the girls climbed heights. To gaze. I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> Just kidding. Verse 23. They embittered him and became antagonistic. Or antagonists. Slika. The arrow-tongued men hated him, but his bow was firmly in place and his arms were gilded from the hands of the mighty power of Jacob. From there, he shepherded the stone of Israel. That was from the God of your of your father, and he will help you, and with Shaddai, he will bless you with blessings of heaven, 
from above, blessings of the deep crouching below, blessings of the bosom and womb. The blessing of your father surpassed the blessing of my parents to the endless bounds of the world's hills. Let them let them be upon Yosef's head and upon the head of the exile from his brothers. It's a pretty significant blessing that he received there um, uh, for Yosef. <clears throat> Let's see here. I think I'll, I wasn't going to share another insight, but I think I'll go ahead and do this from the, our history lesson just real quick. Because I shared in the class last night that um, one of the pitfalls that people have when they come into Judaism from outside of Judaism, which if you're going through a conversion class, that obviously uh, would pertain to those involved. Um, as I shared last night, uh, one of the pitfalls is, is that the idea is that uh, people think that Judaism, Orthodox Judaism I'm talking about, is monolithic meaning that we all believe the same thing, we all do the same thing, and everybody, uh, and then there's this idea that everybody, all Jews who are observant, follow the halacha 100%, like every page of the book, right? If you're not doing what's on page 67 and 103, then you're not a real Jew. And all that, of course, is nonsense. Um, the vast majority of Orthodox Jews uh, go through continual education uh, each and every week to learn the halakha because they don't know it. It's not a slight. I'm not trying to be, you know, it's just, we're, it's, we're all, it, it, that's just normal, right? Where everybody's learning, we're continually growing and so on, okay? So it's like when you talk, like I said last night, if you talk to an observant Jewish person and you say, um, I'm a Christian, they're going to automatically think that you are a Catholic. They don't know the difference. There's no, in, in the Jewish mind, there's no difference between Baptist and Catholic, Episcopal, Pentecostal. It's all the same thing. But Judaism is not monolithic. And today, you have an idea that uh, everybody agreed with, agrees with everybody, and everybody especially agrees with uh, Rambam, right? Like Rambam, if Rambam said it, it's the gospel. It's like Paul's letters. Rambam is like Paul in Judaism. I'm serious. It's like Paul. Like if Paul said it, it doesn't matter if God disagrees or the Messiah disagrees. Um, if, he, if Paul said it, that's the gospel, you go with that, right? That's, how, that's a Christian mindset, 100%. Well, in Judaism, it's a lot like that with respect to Rambam. So, I just want to point out here, just, just a quick insight. Rabbi Nachman, Nachman of Braslav, forbade the study of the biblical commentaries of Avraham Ibn Ezra and Levi Ben Gershon, and of the section Sha'archa Yechut and Bachya Ibn Pakud's Havot Halevot, that is the duties of the heart, he also forbade the book Akidak Yitzhak by Isaac Arama because the latter had employed Rambam's philosophical approach in that commentary on the, on, on the, on the Torah as well as the five scrolls. And as for Rambam, Rambam's own works, More Nevuchim, Milot Hagiayon and Sefer Hamada, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev considered them totally unfit for reading or study by good Jews. Again, just giving everybody um, a historical perspective. Um, and I find that it's healthy because it equips you 
to um, to be in the real world, right? <clears throat> All right, so let's uh, share some insights here, shall we? So let's go back. Um, gosh, there's so much I should... Let me start with Shiloh, shall we? Shiloh, shall we? Here we go. <laughs> It is very, by the way, I also said last night you have, a sense, you have to have a sense of humor, which I'm working on. I'm really trying hard to have a sense of humor. But everybody needs to have a sense of humor. Don't take yourself so seriously. Smile as you're going through this journey. And remember, it's a lifelong journey. So try to have a sense of humor. It is very important to understand the meaning of the phrase, until Shiloh comes. In order to refute the arguments, now this is the writings of Mayam Loez, so let's, let's uh, read through this and we'll dissect what Mayam Loez is, is, is writing here or what he's trying to say. So let me back up and read this again. It is very important to understand the meaning of the phrase until Shiloh comes. Why? He says, in order to refute the arguments of the Christians who believed that the Messiah had already come. As proof, they cite the fact that the domination of Judah, or excuse me, I, I said domination, I meant to say dominion. The dominion of Judah no longer exists. This proof, however, is based on a misinterpretation of the verse. So, uh, Ma'am Loez is writing this commentary I'd have to go back and get the precise date, but I want to say it is the the mid 1700s, okay? Um, around that, uh, uh, or uh, yeah, well, pretty much, yes. It's the early 1700s, 17, 1700 to 1730, okay? So back in those days, and still today, but back in those days, uh, Christianity was using this to say that Shiloh, the Messiah, Yeshua, has come, and he has replaced Jews and Judaism. That was their argument. Now, Shiloh definitely is the Messiah. We're going to see this in just a moment, We're looking at another um, comment. Shiloh is definitely a name of the Mashiach. Shiloh is also, as we're about to find out, definitely Messiah ben Yosef. Where the Christians went wrong is that Shiloh does not come and do away with Judah. Shiloh does not come and replace Judah. Shiloh does not come and create a new religion. That was the problem. That was the argument they were putting forth and was obviously 100% wrong. So that's what Mamloes is talking about here. So he says, this proof, however, is based on a misinterpretation of the verse. They understand it to mean that Judah's dominance will last until the Messiah comes. And then it will be taken, taken away. So it's replacement theology that they're dealing with here. But Mamluez says, but actually the verse means that the scepter will never depart from Judah. This will only be realized, however, when the Messiah comes. So in other words, the coming of the Messiah is going to affirm Judah's dominion, this time not over a single tribe or tribes, but over the entire world. So the coming of the Messiah is supposed to establish Judaism's dominion over the entire world. Why do you think the forces of darkness want to destroy Jews and Judaism? 
because the the anti messiah does not want the the dreams of the messiah to come about what's the dreams of the messiah that the whole world will be living a jewish life eating kosher celebrating shabbat celebrating yom tov etc so it says literally the verse should then be translated as the following quote the scepter will not depart from judah when shiloh comes according to ma'am loez that is the literal translation of our verse So it says, furthermore, we have written in every generation, there must be someone from the tribe of Judah exercising power and authority. So the opinion here is that in every generation, there must be someone from the tribe of Judah who is in some position of power and authority. Now, the good news is that Mashiach lives. Mashiach, who is from the tribe of Judah, that was affirmed, by the way, in the Talmud. The Talmud testifies that Yeshua HaMashiach is from the royal line of David. Isn't it interesting that in the Talmud it actually says that? Isn't it interesting? Because I've had people before. I've had people before, some of whom are anti-missionaries, but sadly some of whom are just uh, uh, confused messianics who have argued against the virgin birth, and they've argued... um, one of their arguments at one point was that Yeshua would not or isn't really from the line of David or something something stupid like that. But it's interesting that in the Talmud it actually affirms that. So it's really not even up for debate. I mean, even the Talmud says, yep, the guy was from the royal line of David. That's why, uh, by the way, that's why Yeshua was allowed to sit, say sit. That's why the Messiah was allowed to sit in the temple and teach. What are you talking about, Rabbi? Well, um, what I mean by that is that no one was allowed to sit in the temple. Everybody had to stand. Why? Because the temple was a microcosm of heaven, Shemayim. And in Shemayim, the angels are not allowed to sit. Only Hashem can sit. Which is one of the reasons why... When Akar went to Shemayim, he saw Memtet sitting in the Holy of Holies, <clears throat> not realizing that that was the image of the Most High. Instead, he thought there was two gods, because he knew that only God could sit. And so he, since he saw this angel, Memtet, sitting, he presumed, he presumed there was two deities. So on earth... Um, in the temple on earth, the only one who can sit, the only one who has the authority to sit in the temple is the king of Israel. Why? Because according to Judaism, the king of Israel is, for all intents and purposes, are you ready for this? The manifestation of God on the earth. Yep, that's true. So the only one allowed to sit in the temple teaching is... The king of Israel, someone from the royal line of David, which is why Yeshua sat in the temple and taught and nobody told him, stand up. This is also why when they came to arrest Yeshua, he said something very important because everything Yeshua said had a significant meaning. And most people don't even realize. They just they just blow past it because, you know, they haven't been taught and all that. They don't know what they don't know. Okay, so there's that. 
But when they came to arrest Yeshua, they said, he said rather, I sat in the temple teaching all the time and you said nothing. Why do you think he said I sat in the temple teaching? Why did he use that specific phraseology? Because he's like, look, you acknowledged by not telling me to get up that I am a true king of Israel. And now you want to come arrest me like some, I'm some kind of bandit? I sat in the temple teaching. Who does that? Nobody. Why? Because they're not from the line of David. I am. Yeah, you said nothing. And now you want to arrest me like I'm some type of, uh, like I just knocked off some kind of CVS uh, grocery store or, or, or drugstore. So Yeshua lives. And as a result, we have someone, if I can use that, who is in every generation exercising the authority of Judah. So anyway, Ma'am Loez <coughs> says this. Some commentators explain this from somewhat a different view. It says the scepter will not depart from Judah since he will have such great status in his brother's eyes. This authority will last even until the Messiah comes. Even the Messiah will be from the tribe of Judah, not from any other tribe. Now, this is one of the problems we have with, uh, with all these other false messiahs that exist within Judaism today. Because as you, well, you may or may not know, but there's certain sects of Judaism exist today and they believe that the founder of their sect the rabbi of their sect etc is the messiah um and it's really ironic because in as much as they would rail against christians let's just deal with christianity for a minute as as in as much as they would rail against christians and they would say well you know uh, your guy didn't fulfill uh, XYZ prophecy. Well, let's just take one for instance. Like they say this about us too. Yeshua didn't come, uh, uh, he didn't establish world peace. So the, the hopes and dreams and prayers of every candidate for Miss America have not yet been realized. Therefore, uh, he's not the Mashiach. Of course, that's nonsense because we know the Mashiach comes initially, he has to come and die, and then later he brings world peace. After he comes back as Mashiach bin Navi, which has not happened yet, maybe sooner our time, I mean. So they, they say these kind of things. They say, so your guy didn't, uh, didn't fulfill that prophecy, so therefore he's out. And yet, their guy is not even from the tribe of Judah. Hello? Is, this, is, is my microphone on? Can you hear me? He, their guy's not even from Judah. In fact, in some cases, never even stepped foot in the promised land, much less was not born in Bethlehem. And yet... They're accepted as a potential Messiah candidate. And you're asking yourself, right now you're like, that's crazy, Rabbi. How can that be? It's called divine, in, divinely imparted blindness. You know, if you really do a study on bigotry and prejudice, bigotry and prejudice is completely nonsensical. People hate people because of the color of their skin or, or whatever, you know, whatever bigotry they particularly have. None of it makes sense. All of it is contradictory. It's, it's, it's blind hatred. 
It's completely ignorant. And that's what we have here. Um, so another insight here, which is interesting. Ma'am Loez offers a curiously weak argument. As much as I love Ma'am Loez, he's a great commentator. From time to time, as with anybody, we're all human beings, right? Ma'am Loez is a human, Paul is a human, I'm human. We sometimes offer up weak arguments, and here's another weak one. But I understand what he's trying to do, but it's a weak one. Let me, let me share it with you. It says the Messiah is called Shiloh to indicate that he will be born of a woman. Now, the translator of Ma'am Loez, I, I gotta, I've got to take back what I just said about Ma'am Loez, because Ma'am Loez, I've said, offered up a weak argument, but I just, it just dawned on me that what's being offered next is in, quote, is in uh, brackets, which means that the translator is offering up their interpretation. This happens in the Gospels when it says, and Yeshua made all foods clean, and that's in parentheses or brackets. That means it's not in the original text. That means that whoever is translating that is offering up their little dime store um, you know, coins, which is uh, unfortunate because if you're going to translate something, you really ought not, you know, you didn't write the letter, right? So don't put in your sentence, I'm just saying. Uh, because Yeshua did not make all foods clean. Had that happened, uh, he would have been a, uh, a Torah breaker, which would have invalidated his Mashiach ship. But how do we know, by the way, just not to get off on that topic, but to get off on that topic, how do we know that um, Yeshua did not make all foods clean? Do we, we can debate it. We can talk about the brackets. Uh, we can talk about uh, what the Torah says. And we can go back and forth and blah, 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 blah. But how do we know for sure 100%? without any doubt whatsoever that the whole idea that Yeshua made all foods clean, how do we know for 100% for sure that never happened? It's a big uh, lie. It's uh, whatever, whatever. How do we know 100%? The answer is it was never brought up at his trial. Because that would have been an easy one, right? If they want to tell everybody that this guy is a Torah breaker, a lawbreaker, inciting people to rebel against God, that was their accusation, right? The I mean, talk about a delinquent prosecutor. He should have just got up and said, you know what? This guy uh, nullified all of Leviticus 11 and all of Deuteronomy 14. And then all of his supporters would have said, that's right. And they would have said, oh, see. But since it wasn't brought up at his trial, it never happened. So it says here, the Messiah is called Shiloh to indicate that he's born of a woman, in brackets it says, and will not be a divine being. Now that's an interesting thing. Just because you're born of a woman doesn't mean, it means you're not divine. Hmm. So it says, the amniotic sac in which the fetus is formed in the womb is called Shila, or Shilia, Slika, Shilia. The Messiah's name Shiloh, so basically it's spelled the same way, it's just that the Lamed and the Yod are switched. The Messiah's name Shiloh hence indicates that he will be born from a Shila, from a amniotic sac. So I guess the idea is, is that he'll be born of a... The, so it's interesting because in the attempt to discredit the divine Messiah, it actually affirms him. Because it says that Shiloh will in fact be born of an amniotic sac, which of course happened. Uh, but it says nothing about the involvement of a man. 
just says there has to be a woman, right? Because the man doesn't have the amniotic sac, which is why we use a men's restroom. I'm just saying. <clears throat> that was a pop culture dig. But anyway, um, how are we on time? Oh, great. We have, uh, let me go back over here to Shiloh. Oh, this is the Kehot Chumash. Um... That's a great insight on helping others. We may have to get that to that tomorrow. Let me read this on Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh being Mashiach ben David. Or Shmiach ben Yosef. Slika. <clears throat> so it says, Until the coming of Shiloh, which is one of the names of Messiah. So the Kehot Humash here is bringing down that Shiloh is, of course, a name of the Mashiach. Shiloh also alluded to the person who begins, or began rather, the process of redemption. Now, the Kehot Chumash is going to bring together the idea that Moses is that original Shiloh. And to a certain extent, it's true, there's a type there, there's a type and shadow. Whereas Moses, on the one hand... um, represents Messiah ben David, but in a, in a way, he also represents Messiah ben Yosef. So it's like both Messiahs in one person. So there's a spiritual picture there. It's also interesting that the, Mo, the Moses is the, the highlight of the Exodus. All the attention is placed on him, but it's interesting that Hashem makes sure that in front of, in front of Pharaoh, there are two people confronting him, Aaron and Moses. Why two? Because everything in Torah has a divine purpose. And the answer to the riddle is that Hashem is continually to put forth that the redemption of Israel, the exodus of Israel, will always involve two Mashiachs. Now again, I want to emphasize, it's not two different Mashiachs, it's, it's two in one, it's a twofer. So anyway, it says, Shiloh also alludes to the person who began the process of redemption, that the Messiah will complete. So Shiloh itself, that name itself, is a name of Messiah, but it's particularly related to the Messiah that is going to begin the process of redemption that the Messiah will eventually complete. So it says the numerical value, now it says here Moses is this character. Why do they say Moses? Here's why. Because the numerical value of Shiloh 345 is thus the same as that of Moses, which Moses, if you read it backwards, if you play the Moses record backwards, it says Hashem. Yeshua is that spiritual Moses. So anyway, it says, by leading us from Egypt and then receiving the Torah at Sinai, Moses gave us the potential to bring about the ultimate redemption, that is the coming of Shiloh. So on the one hand, Shiloh begins the redemption, and on the other hand, Shiloh is the end of the redemption. So it says the actualization, or it says here, I'm sorry, let me back up, it says about the, the final redemption, which is the coming of Shiloh. So the coming of Shiloh speaks to the end of the redemption, according to this Insight. So it says the actualization of what Shiloh slash Moses began, 
the numerical value of the word coming of Shiloh is 358, which is the exact same as Mashiach. So essentially we have Shiloh who's going to come twice. Shiloh comes to begin the redemption, and then the coming of Shiloh is the Mashiach who comes to bring us into the final redemption, to conclude the redemption. Now there's another interesting insight here in this next paragraph related to this. Before I read this, I want to say that one time I had an anti-missionary who took issue with our tagline, Yeshua-centered Judaism. Yeshua being, of course, the only true Messiah of Israel. And the anti-missionary took issue with it because the person said, incorrectly, that Judaism is halakhically focused. They don't care anything about the Messiah. Not that they don't care, I shouldn't, put, I shouldn't say it that way, but rather it's not the focus, it's not the center of attention. It's nitpicky, it's stupid, it's full of childish sandbox stuff. But what I'm about to read to you is going to actually, uh, again, Judaism is not monolithic. All right, so that was that person's opinion from whatever sect of Orthodox Judaism he comes from. But listen to this. In order for us to actualize the redemption, that is to progress from the Moses to the coming of Shiloh, the Messiah, we must work together towards that goal, particularly by making the Messiah and the redemption the foremost topics of public dis discourse. In other words, gentlemen and ladies, we have to make, make it Yeshua-centered, Messiah-centered Judaism. End of our Aliyah today. There is a lot more to share. We are out of time, but never out of content. Thank you so much for being with me. I pray that you have a blessed, wonderful, amazing, joyful, and wonderful day. With God's help, we will see everybody back here tomorrow, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, for the conclusion of Sefer Breshit. Shalom and blessings.